Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, uh, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economics of charity, it seemed appropriate, given it's the end of the year, uh, people may be thinking about donating, so stick around to hear about how to think about that kind of giving. But first, something more from the news, and the data point there is 75, as in 75 years, which is essentially exactly how long the world has had an international trading system governed by law. That system originally went by the name of GATT. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which came into effect on January 1st, 1948, that's 75 years ago, as I said, eventually got renamed the WTO in the mid-90s. It was one of the central characters of the age of globalization, a symbol of the rise of developing countries and also of the rise of anger at global inequality. But that entire system is now at a crossroads. The World Trade Organization has ruled that the U.S. violated international trade rules with tariffs imposed. The U.S.-China tech war, it escalates as the Biden administration continues its crackdown on Chinese chip industry. China brought an immediate complaint about the tariffs to the WTO, requesting the tariffs be disputed. And on Friday, the United States, which was pretty central to the establishment of this whole global trading system, has recently started directly challenging it. This month, the WTO declared that some of the tariffs imposed by the Trump administration, which President Biden has kept in place, are illegitimate according to the WTO's own rules. The Biden administration responded essentially by saying they didn't care. They considered the tariffs to be justified on national security grounds. And conveniently, the appellate body at the WTO that would be tasked with adjudicating the dispute that's unable to do its job because the United States has refused to appoint judges that would allow it to function. So all this comes as Europe is also upset at the United States for subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act, which Europe claims are also in violation of the WTO. That may lead to other retaliatory tariffs, essentially the kind of trade war the WTO was designed to prevent. So the question that came to mind for us is whether this 75th anniversary is also a kind of memorial, an end to the WTO's natural life. So, Adam, I guess just a basic question here, um, given what I just described, is the United States intentionally trying to sabotage the WTO here? And let's say the WTO ceased to work properly. I mean, what would be lost exactly? What function does this organization play in the world economy right now? It's um, really, I think you're right, at a kind of historical transition point. And I think many people thought that the 
attack on the WTO by the Trump administration was an aberration. Uh, I think that was always a misunderstanding. I mean, Trump himself was, you know, in a fundamental sense, non-WTO conforming. His understanding of trade was just not compatible with the sophisticated notions of reciprocity and so on and, and legality that the WTO embodies. But more seriously, Robert Lighthizer, the US trade representative under Trump, really formulated a sweeping historical critique of the WTO. And what's very striking, I think, is how far the Biden administration has, in fact, adopted that. Um, as you said, when when the, the WTO ruled that the tariffs that the United States imposed on steel were were egregiously in, in breach of, um, of its norms, uh, these are the Section 232 measures on steel and aluminium, um, the United States has, in fact, revoked the measures it took against Canada and Europe, but has kept those against China firmly in place. And, and when asked you know, to state its position, it did so in astonishingly blunt terms. Um, it's really remarkable. Um, these WTO panel reports only reinforced the need to fundamentally reform the WTO dispute settlement system. So it, the, the Biden administration's position is that the judgment against it confirms its view that the WTO is broken. The WTO has proven ineffective at stopping severe and persistent non-market excess capacity from the People's Republic of China and others that is an existential threat to market-orientated steel and aluminium sectors and a threat to US national security. The WTO now suggests that the United States too must stand idly by. The United States will not see decision-making over its essential security to WTO panels. I mean, it's really, it's really extraordinary. Um, they're basically saying, look, you know, we will not, we will not uh, back down. We regard this as a matter of existential interest and of national security interest. That blows the whole system up. Um, and not only is it the United States refusing to accept this judgment, but it is, as you say, also um, since the Trump administration, basically paralyzing the dispute settlement system. That appears to be the the you know a satisfactory status quo from the point of view of the United States. It isn't a satisfactory position from the point of view of at least two dozen um, other members of the WTO, including the EU, who've set up a kind of improvised alternative arbitration system, which the United States has has gone out of its way also to take a hostile position towards. So. This is really quite a fundamental breach, and uh, steel and aluminium are really the least of it. Um, you know, the most fundamental measures are clearly those that the US has been taken in the microchip arena, where it's engaged not just in you know general purpose protectionist measures, but really surgical strikes on the industrial capacity of of China in general, and particular Chinese um, firms, um, in particular Huawei, of course, being the being the most extraordinary example of this. So at the center of this are, are these tariffs that the Trump administration put into effect. They've been in effect for a handful of years already. And I'm curious whether trade has empirically diminished uh, since they have been in place. I mean, have they had a measurable effect on the total volume of trade that the United States is involved in and, and the world as a whole? And I guess everyone's been talking about inflation and have these tariffs been playing a role in, in the increase in prices that everyone's talking about? The um, tariffs have worked. They have had an effect, but mainly in the form of trade displacement. Um, so what's happened is that trade has shifted from the Sino-American route to other routes. Um, and the most important of those is uh, probably the connection to Vietnam, which has seen a substantial increase in trade with the United States. 
And the important thing to know about that is that much of the trade that is now routed through Vietnam is still with Chinese companies, um, but it's now coming out of, of, of Vietnam rather than China. Um, the the significant different point, sorry, the significant exception to this, and the and the, the example which really breaks that rule is is the targeted attack on the on the microchip uh, sector in and the microelectronics sector in China, where re- regardless of where they produce, um, Chinese firms have been targeted, and and that has had a noticeable impact on the speed of the rollout of five G technology around the world because Huawei was the mid-tech supplier of choice. It was the low-cost option for 5G networks, and it has been now you know, systematically discriminated against uh, really at America's behest across most of the world. So this is causing um, holdups in the rollout of 5G. Does all of this impact inflation? Yes, it does. At the margin, it's quite clear um, that um, imposing tariffs on cheap sources of imports and shifting imports to less efficient sources causes uh, prices to rise. And of course, in the context of the inflationary surge that began in 2021, it was a good talking point, especially for Democratic experts and commentators, to point to the damaging impact of Trump's protectionism um, on uh, American inflation. But much of many of the Trump tariffs have in fact been rolled back, notably those which affected Europe and other and Canada. And it made a good talking point, of course, that the, the Trump tariffs did raise costs in the in the context of rising American inflation in, in 2021. But according to estimates by the Peterson Institute of International Economics, if all of Trump's tariffs were revoked at a stroke, the impact on the American price level would be to reduce it by 0.3 of 1% of the overall level of prices. And that would be a one-off effect. So it it does indeed contribute to the extent of 0.3 of 1% to the price level, but it clearly isn't the main driver of um, the inflationary dynamic that America has experienced and the rest of the world have experienced since 2021. So I mentioned that Europe recently has been particularly upset at the subsidies involved in the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act. These are subsidies that are intended to grow the U.S. renewable energy sector to combat climate change. You know, Europe has been watching this with concern, but they've been reluctant to retaliate. They've sort of been trying to negotiate some of these problematic subsidies away, uh, problematic from their perspective. Uh, It got me wondering why exactly is Europe so reluctant to kind of engage in this kind of tit-for-tat trade policy? It seems like Europe's commitment to free trade, as embodied by the WTO, is, yeah, even greater than the United States. So what accounts for that? Yeah, what what accounts for this European reluctance? I mean, by by now, the, the, the extent of, as it were, the mind shift in the United States is uh, on this issue of trade um, is so dramatic that it, it's worth just, you know, recalling that once upon a time, um, you know, a kind of dogged commitment to um, free trade as the basic, you know, norm of international economic relations, you know, in the era of neoliberalism, it was supposed to be bread and butter. This was supposed to be, you know, motherhood and apple pie. There wasn't anything to argue about. So to that extent, you know, the European response is, well, you know, we don't retaliate and we don't engage in tit for tat because 
Why? Because we know it's bad. Like, you know, it's it's the wrong path. This is not the direction of travel. You're on the wrong side of history when you engage in this. We all know that invoking national security clauses is, you know, the last resort of the scoundrel who's stuck in a corner and can't come up with some other argument for doing what they're going to do. When Trump did it, we all laughed. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to take it seriously. And of course, the mood has shifted on China. Um, but but at some level, there is that deep commitment. If you if you actually talk to European bureaucrats, you're talking to people who spent their entire career, you know, from their university training onwards, committed to the principles of multilateral trade liberalisation, and they don't flinch from them. And they don't flinch from them in part because, on the face of it, on balance, in most cases, it's probably true from a from the point of view of you know a simple economic logic that protectionism is is the wrong way to go. And only in exceptional circumstances is tit for tat logic. Does it really make any sense? And most of the time, you know, you're, you're, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's, it's a, it's a self-harming kind of response. The movement to liberalize markets, to build a common market that's truly, you know, a single market has been the dominant strand driving Europe forward. And one of the key elements of this is the coherence of the European project internally, which has to do with state aid rules. So in the current way with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're not just talking about, as it were, discrimination against foreign imports. We're talking about subsidy regimes directed towards people that produce electric vehicles, batteries and so on within North America. And part of the reason that Europe is squeamish about this is that as a matter of politics managing the tensions within the EU between its member states, a key element is something that America doesn't have, which is a blanket ban on state aid. In the United States, the states of the United States compete with each other in essentially open-ended subsidy races um, for major industrial plants. And this is banned by European rules to prevent that kind of tension between the European states. And that's, I think, the last element of this, which is that as a system of rules and norms has emerged in Europe that is centered on this question of creating a level playing field, if you like, sort of interstate commerce type clauses within the European constitution, as that has become a key anchor of Europe's identity, it's also become associated with the perhaps deepest principle and sort of identifying element of the European project, which is the rule of law. You know, beyond being a democratic system, the EU is a law-bound entity. And for the Europeans, the sort of high-handed way in which the United States is essentially claiming for itself the right to opt out of appellate procedures at the WTO, for instance, smacks essentially of a kind of lawlessness. You mentioned China there. And as you made clear when you read that excerpt earlier from the US trade representative in their response to the WTO, it does seem like the United States' intent on shifting blame for this rupture of the global trading system onto China. Uh, They've been pointing out that China has been violating fair trade practices for years. So what do you make of this argument? Is China the real culprit here, like the United States is arguing? I think the the weasel word there is real, right? So, I mean, there's no doubt at all that China is a culprit. China has dirty hands. China has been in various ways 
um, you know, fudging the trade rules. It subsidizes state-owned businesses. It provides, you know, gigantic support to national champions of various types. It has been ruthless in its appropriation of other people's intellectual property. And if you promised yourself, you know, in your support for China's WTO accession, that at some point China would engage in a sense in a kind of economic regime change, and there would be, as the Germans like to say, Wandel durch Handel, you know, transformation through trade. Obviously, that has been quite fundamentally disappointed. Um, so all of that is true. But of course, on the other hand, if you're asking what accounts for our current state of antagonism, you'd have to say that the fact of the matter is that China lived perfectly well with the status quo of the last 20 years. And they assumed, I think, that whatever the formalities and whatever the you know, the verbiage, everyone had always understood that this is how this would go. China was a much lower income country in the 1990s. It was not a champion of any area of technology at the time. And so, you know, everyone understood that as a developing emerging market economy, in fact, a low income country initially, it would do whatever it takes to catch up. And that's essentially what it's done. And of course, in the meantime, it's provided a gigantic market, a huge source of profit for businesses in the West, both in Europe and the United States, and whatever damage they suffered in China was more than offset by the giant profits they were making along the way. If you think, for instance, of the auto industry, which simply, you know, its entire fortunes were transformed in the first 20 years of this century by, by the growth of the Chinese market from a tiny fraction of global demand to being the largest market in the world. So if your market increasing, then the things you do that are naughty on the margins are relatively trivial by comparison but with the growth that you, that you produce. It's, you know, it's a little bit like a divorce. America is suing for divorce. So into that extent, it's like the active party in the rupture but it's citing 20 years of abuse by its spouse to justify this move. And that's the kind of logic of the situation. America is, in a sense, a revisionist power in this situation because it cannot live any longer with the status quo that's being created by China's success. And I think that's worth emphasizing because if you think hypothetically, counterfactually, and it's no more than that, but just experiment you know, in mind, have, have this run this thought experiment. Imagine if China had adhered to every single rule, had fulfilled every promise it made in the late 1990s. Could any of us be confident in saying that we wouldn't at this point be at precisely the point we're at, namely that America is engaged in a undeclared economic war against China, particularly in the tech sector? And I think the answer is pretty obviously, no, we couldn't be, right? The, the reason why America is now pushing back at China's e economic growth at its most essential technological in its most essential technological components, is not really that China broke the rules. Um, the reason is that China has succeeded in growing too rapidly and now poses a manifest world historic challenge to American dominance in key sectors. And then, as America says, you know, no rules apply. When it's a matter of national security, when it's a matter of existential interests, America is not willing to to accept the the a system which it more than any other country and after all midwifed into existence. This brings me to my final question here, which is admittedly a pretty general one, but I'm wondering why are subsidies for industries and even tariffs, I guess, frankly, seen as a contradiction of trading principles in the first place? I guess another way of rephrasing this would just be like who defines the free in free trade in in that phrase i think this is a brilliant point it's really it's really a subtle and interesting one and it's one that trade theory began to grapple with really from the 1970s onwards 
which is, is precisely as you put it, like, you know, is it more than mere convention to say that, you know, wage costs or natural conditions that favour one country rather than another, you know, those are legitimate, you know, reasons for comparative advantage in a pattern of trade, as opposed to, you know, interventions. I mean, after all, you know, is is our underlying norm essentially one of a perfectly homogenous condition, you know, almost like a chess game, something like that, um, in which the, the sides are perfectly balanced and then it's just down to skill, to, you know, to decide the outcome of this. I mean, and it's an incredibly fragile i think um set of distinctions which are which are implied by these by these conventional understandings i mean take advantageous geography i mean you know i'm in, in new york city right now and obviously in some ways you know it has advantageous geography we're at we're at the delta of the you know the great hudson river you know in manhattan is this extraordinary island positioned in the middle of it but but obviously it takes gigantic actions of investment um, dredging the construction of piers to create the possibility of taking advantage of this natural geography to achieve and to turn new york into one of the world's great ports now in doing that you know if you start out from the existing state of play when you make those investments and build that infrastructure you are changing the name of the game in global competition right that in and of itself creates the underlying geography and the geography is then widely recognized as being you know absolutely acceptable as a differentiating factor paul, paul krugman um you know really made his reputation as a theorist in thinking about precisely these kind of logics, how comparative advantage at any given moment is the product of path-dependent, historically conditioned patterns of development. And the consequence of this is profoundly destabilizing to these kind of simple distinctions between natural advantages and political distortions, because what at any given moment appears to be a natural pattern of advantage and disadvantage is, you know, on closer examination, the effect of history in, in every possible sense. And, and that potentially, of course, opens the door to a complete free-for-all, because if you accept this logic, then really the distinction breaks down. And as you know, you might simply say, well, live with it. Like, you know, China is what it is. There isn't going to be regime change. If you want to do business with China, you reckon with all of the risks. And de facto, the revealed preference of global business is hell they want part of that pie. Absolutely they do. They'll take all the risks they have to to be part of that a part of that that game. And in a sense, you could say the dispute between China and the United States and the West in the current moment is that the Chinese took it, that the world historic gamble of bringing them into the WTO was some sort of a exceptional regime like that. In other words, whilst you develop and make the entire world more prosperous and heave hundreds of millions of people out of dire poverty, we will turn a blind eye to what you're doing. And in a sense, what you could say in the current moment is that the United States uh, is taking the lead in simply saying, right, well, now we want to historically renegotiate. What's striking is that at that moment, rather than committing to the organizations that it created in the 40s, 50s, and then the 90s, the United States seems in a sense to be simply walking away from them. I'm always happy when my naive questions happen to line up with sophisticated academic discussions like this, but we do need to leave the discussion here for now. So we'll stop uh, here, but we will be back right after this break to talk about charity. Hi. 
Hi, and we're back. Our next data point is 485 billion. That's in dollars, and that's the amount of money that Americans gave to charity in 2021. Much of that giving happens towards the end of the year as the holidays come around. So yeah, we thought we'd turn our attention to charitable giving. Adam, first of all, I wanted to ask, how do Americans compare with other countries in terms of charitable giving? I just mentioned that number, $485 billion. It's a pretty high number, but yeah. Would that make America the most charitable country in the world, or are there other competitors there? Um, it is the most charitable by most conventional metrics, I think, um, in terms of the overall volume. I mean, America is a large, rich country, but also in terms of share of GDP and the number of people who give money. So those are like three obvious ways of measuring how large uh, the charity sector is in a country. Um the amongst rich countries, um, the share of donations, um, even in America's close neighbors like Canada, is is much lower, um, and in Europe, spectacularly lower. The number of people involved in charity is, by the standards of rich countries, very very high, and it extends to volunteering as well, which is far more common in the United States than most other rich countries. Um, the countries which come closest in terms of giving culture, in terms of the breadth of giving culture, are uh, interestingly places like Myanmar. And and the, the the crucial link here appears basically to be religion. I mean, people have commented on the the culture of self help in American society all the way back to the 18th century. De Tocqueville wrote about it during his visit to the United States. But the common denominator amongst countries worldwide, which have high levels of participation in charitable giving, is the prevalence of popular religion. Um, and that is, of course, what marks the United States as quite distinct from any other rich country. The level of religiosity, the percentage of people who report themselves to be uh, committed uh, to religions and the percentage that attend um, religious services, uh, whether in uh, churches or synagogues or mosques, uh, uh, is substantially higher than any equivalent country. And if you look at what the money is given for, um, this shows up there. So um, somewhere between 60 and 70% of that very large volume of charitable giving in the United States goes through religious channels. About 40% of that element is directly to religious institutions, so of the religious component, about 40%, and 60% is by way of other charitable activities that are associated with a religious denomination in one way or the other. And so that, I think, is the sort of the really sui generis quality of giving in the United States. It's particularly striking that Low-income Americans give large percentages of their income, relatively speaking, to charity, um, in part because considerable numbers of uh, low-income Americans are quite serious church-going folk who therefore tithe in various ways, and that pushes the numbers up very considerably. Um, it's also true across the United States that the more religious parts of the country, the, the Midwest and the South, give proportionally considerably more than notably New England, which um, is particularly parsimonious. Um, so, yes, America is different, um, and we think that religion is probably the key factor. Okay, so you say religion is this positive factor towards charitable giving, but I wonder, are welfare states maybe a, a negative factor? I mean, you mentioned Europe as not being particularly charitable. Is that maybe because welfare states are 
crowding out charitable spending by taxing the public and redistributing to civil society. Maybe citizens don't feel like they should be donating on their own. I think it's hard to deny that that's broadly speaking true, right? That um, rich societies with expansive welfare states tend to have lower levels of charitable donation than they do in the United States. There are intermediating factors there in the sense that they also have less religiosity than the United States. That too may be associated with the welfare state because a cradle-to-grave welfare state, as it were, takes care of two of the you know, crucial life phases, uh, childbirth and death, um, in, in, say, the British case, publicly funded hospitals. So the entire thing has a public sector, secularized kind of feel to it, um, which is quite different in many ways from many people's experience um, in the United States. So I think, broadly speaking, it's true. Um, of course, the differences here are relative. It's not as though the vast majority of healthcare or welfare in the United States is ge- delivered charitably, right? So even if America is significantly more charity-centered than the European states, that it doesn't, um, it doesn't detract from the fact that um, overall in the United States as well, the vast majority of redistribution and um, welfare is, is, is tax-funded um, as well. So I think the displacement effect is real. What you're seeing in the United States is, um, I think, powerful motives that continue to drive people to give, even though, in a sense, a modern welfare state could do the job, and religion is one of those. And the, and the, other, the other factor here, a very considerable part of charitable giving in the United States, which has no counterpart in most of the rest of the world, is um, peer group pressure uh, amongst groups like alumni, for instance. So America's higher education system in particular is unique in the world in the scale of the endowments accumulated through alumni giving. I mean, the European universities don't have anything even remotely like that kind of network. Even Cambridge and Oxford, which you might think of as the European universities most like um, Ivy League or other large American institutions, um, don't have anything remotely like the kind of system of alumni giving. They were founded in the Middle Ages by private foundations in the early modern period, but the current flow of alumni giving is is much, much less dramatic. We shouldn't, however, ignore another element of the welfare state regime, which is not so much welfare spending or taxing, but in fact, tax exemption, right? So one of the crucial drivers of gifting in the United States is clearly that you can claim tax exemption for those gifts. So if you are minded to do something charitable, if you want to support a cause that you care about, you do it taking advantage of you know, if if you're a high income person in the United States, a very considerable tax break because the donations that you make are tax exempt. So that that um, substantially encourages giving. In every respect, though, your this question is absolutely spot on. the The whole relationship is framed by what the state does, what tax uh, incentives are there, what substitutes are available. It's not a standalone. It's not a standalone relationship. Yeah, I mean, that gets me wondering what percentage of charities or nonprofits are essentially frauds. I mean, yeah, I guess in a broader sense, I mean, why aren't there even more such frauds that we know about? I mean, it's not illegal to run an ineffective charity, right, where you just pocket money that people donate to you, right? So, yeah, what do we know about fraudulent charities? 
Well, I mean, there is, there's no doubt there's a lot of fraud. I mean, we think in general there's quite a lot of financial fraud in the entire system. I mean, and if you apply kind of standard ratios of fraudulent transactions, which some, for some people estimates run as high as 5 6% of you know, all transactions in one way or another are slightly deceptive, which seems like a very high number to me. But in any case, even if it's smaller than that, on the flow of almost half a trillion dollars, you're clearly going to get some people getting rich in in ways which are taking advantage of of, of the generosity of, of, of folks who want to, to to support a cause. This is particularly pronounced, and I think it's worth saying it's important to be particularly wary following um, following a crisis. So uh, one of the one of the scandals really was following the you know the terrible Hurricane Katrina that did such terrible damage in New Orleans, and there were. Uh, a, a huge number of fraudulent um, uh, agencies set up. The, the internet is particularly dangerous in this respect. That 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 traded under names which were similar to legitimate operations and attracted attracted substantial numbers of donations. Um, if you get on the wrong robocall list, you can find yourself bombarded by telephone calls. You know, asking you to contribute support to you know, the fireman's fund or the police charitable organization or, or whatever else. And it's pretty difficult to tell sometimes the difference between the legitimate and the illegitimate operations. So it, it's all real. But they have seen you coming, Cam. So your your mm. your your scheme to set up, you know, the world's most inefficient charity whose, yeah, you know, whose central vice is that it, it pays yourself. You see, there is a law that that, that regulates this, and and so the not-for-profit regulations specifically provides that mm. charities and not-for-profits must not operate in the interests of private individuals. And clearly, a charity which is taking substantial donations and has ninety to ninety-five percent operating costs de facto is falling found of that regulation, and it will be under those terms that they would pursue you as a fraudster. Um, because not-for-profit organisations are specifically excluded from participating in activities that are primarily the benefit uh, that primarily benefit um, private shareholders or the interests of private groups. Got it. Maybe as a final question, I wanted to hear your thoughts about how one should go about picking a cause in the first place. I mean, this is aside from the kind of due diligence questions of making sure that the charities are effective, but. You have to start by picking a cause to want to to back. So, you know, we've talked about the effective altruism movement before. I mean, this is this philosophical movement became very concerned about speculative causes that could eventually do outsized damage to the United States, like sentient artificial intelligence. You know, we talked about that in an earlier episode. Yeah. Should we be trying to maximize utility through charitable giving in the way that this sort of philosophical movement had been trying to do? Or... Should we just be trying to help the people around us? Or is there not a contradiction there? I mean, are both economically cogent ways of thinking about charity? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't think, it doesn't seem to me that it's, I mean, if you think there's a simple answer to this question, then I think you must be some sort of a effective altruist utilitarian of some type, right? If you, if you, because I think this is a serious question. And if you, if, if you don't think it's a serious question, then I think you probably believe that, Yes, obviously, the purpose of charity should be some sort of utility maximization. And then it's a question of how you specify that utility function. And they managed to tie themselves in some really crazy knots, right, by deciding that you couldn't really discount the future. And so, you know, future causes mattered much more. And so since vast 
the greater numbers of people are going to live in future than live now, in a sense, now became completely irrelevant and all of your money would be spent on, you know, highbrow research into the risk of collisions with asteroids or something. And if it so happened that the people who were doing that were, you know, your best mates and people who went to college with you, then, you know, well, well, that's just because they're smart and they're working on big problems, right? So you can see, I think, the kind of detour impasse that that mode of thinking could lead you into. Down the other end is this, exactly as you say, the sort of impulse which makes perfect sense to want to assist people that literally, I mean, somebody may be begging on the street that 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 you in most urban environments is not actually a stranger to you. It's somebody that you see most days um, in many cases. And the question is, what kind of relationship do you want with them? You know, do you want to just walk by and say, well, I pay my taxes and they ought to be taken care of by those kind of agencies? Or do you respond to their plight and their situation by by giving them money? Uh, and, and it seems to me both are kind of completely you know, logical responses. It's a matter of emotional balance. You experience this very viscerally if you travel as a rich Westerner, a conspicuous rich Westerner to a society like India, where you confront begging of a type that you're just not used to dealing with. And I think it, at that moment, you're, it, you're, it's revealed how porous these lines are, how conventional they are in a sense, right? And how the fact, for instance, that child welfare ensures that the very large number of poor children that there are, for instance, in a society like the United States, but also in you know, European societies, are generally their misery and their poverty is not something that you directly confront. Whereas in a society like India, small children will routinely beg from you. And at that moment, this question you're asking of, you know, what is the right choice here is 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 painfully i mean it's it's acutely difficult to deal with and then if you travel with you know indian people that you know maybe from a similar social background you see the various techniques they've developed for coping with this confrontation because it's so it's upsetting to everyone and how do you how do you mm. deal with it and and it's in part of the reason of course is that giving money in a situation like that may help provide food for that day or that evening and may help feed a family indeed, but it of course it doesn't solve the problem in any sense. And so, and you may indeed encourage behavior, which will then become exploitative of children. So it's very, it's very complicated, I think. And both positions, you know, there's a validity to both positions, but they're signaling two rather different things. One is signaling a capacity to stand back and do the rational calculus. It's a, you know, inherently kind of elitist position, because if you can do that, you're insulating yourself or you are insulated. On the other hand, a kind of emphatic, like you're suggesting, like a, a, an embrace mm. of the condition of being in this world together and being alongside each other and needing to respond to that. And, and, um, and it could be, you know, what is it that guides that? Well, it, this is why I think religion is very powerful because religion sort of establishes a third force above interpersonal interaction, which is that spiritual domain. But I think even secular people, at moments like that, secular people give less. It's a you know well-established um, sort of disagreeable fact of the world, but it's true. But at that moment, at the moment of spontaneous giving to address a crisis, you are signalling your acknowledgement of being in the same world as somebody who might be a very long way away and living under drastically different circumstances. 
Yeah, it strikes me that all these, you know, these philosophical movements talk about comparative utility, but no one talks about comparative misery, you know, like there is something about, there's something absolute about existent misery that is sort of compelling. But yeah, I guess we didn't, we didn't provide a single answer there, but it does sound like giving is a good thing. I think we're in agreement about that. So yeah, if you can manage to do that this year, uh, all the better. Uh, Okay, we will leave it there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.